selection of reading. I just believe in hoping at random and starting where you were and read from where you were, but which is divine. But if you select, it's not. So I'm going to con just continue where I was. In the intimate Murton, his life from his journals, Thomas Merton. And it says that Merton's real autobiography is his personal journals. Not that book, Seven Story Mountain. <laughs> February 10, 1950, St. Scholastica. I went to the garden house uh, attic as usual after dinner. Climbed up the ladder, observing all the hoes and shovels lying on the floor. I made my way through the litter of old stove pipes and broken strawberry boxes to the chair by the window. On the chair is a sack stained with either paint, creosote, or the blood of something slaughtered. I opened the small window. A pane fell out one day when I let it slam. I could still see the fragments of glass on the red roof of the shed up below. Today it was wonderful. Clouds, sky overcast, but tall streamers of sunlight coming down in a fan over the bare hills. Suddenly I became aware of great excitement. The pasture was full of birds, starlings. There was a, an eagle flying over the woods. The crows were all frightened and were soaring very high, keeping out of the way. Even more distant still were the buzzards flying and circling, obscuring everything from a distance. The starlings filled every hill tree and shone in the light and sang. The eagle attacked a tree full of starlings, but before he was near them, the whole cloud of them left the tree and avoided him, and he came nowhere near them. It's funny, I saw once a hawk attack uh, some blackbirds. Man, there's a lot of noise, too. When he went away, they all lighted on the ground, and they were there moving about and singing for about five minutes. Then, like lightning, it happened. I saw a scare go into the cloud of birds. They opened their wings and began to rise off the ground, and in that split second... From behind the house and from over my roof, a hawk came down like a bullet and shot straight into the middle of the starlings just as they were getting off the ground. They rose into the air and there was a slight scuffle on the ground as the hawk got his talons into one bird he had nailed. Doesn't sound like a spiritual book, huh? You think this is a quiet monkish book? <laughs> It was a terrible yet beautiful thing, that lightning flight straight as an arrow that killed that slowest starling. Then every tree, every field was cleared. I do not know where all the starlings went. Florida, maybe. <laughs> Is that a joke? Huh? No, he's in Kentucky. The crows were still in sight, but over their wood... They're guttural cursing now. Nothing more to do with this affair. You see, when I saw a hawk attack, the same situation, attack a, a blackbird, they were like cursing and complaining. They like really complained. They were doing guttural cursing. Mm -hmm. 
against that hawk. Their guttural cursing had nothing more to do with this hawk. I have personal experience. I saw. I can relate to the story. I saw a hawk attack the blackbirds, or the actually crows, or something. And yeah, but then, but the sound of their complaining was unbelievable. They complained. You've heard birds. No, they sound literally like cursing, like they sound like they're really angry at the hawk. So they, in some ways, they protect their own. The vultures, the lovers of dead things, circled over the bottoms where perhaps there was something dead. The hawk, all alone in the pasture, possessed his prey. He did not fly away with it like a thief. He stayed in the field like a king with the killed bird. And nothing else came near him. He took his time. I tried to pray afterward, but the hawk was eating the bird. And I thought of that flight coming down like a bullet from the sky behind me and over my roof, the sure aim with which he hit that one bird as though he had picked it out a mile away. For a moment I envied the lords of the Middle Ages who had their hawks, and I thought of the Arabs with their fast horses hawking on the desert's edge, and I also understood the terrible fact that some men love war. Remember in one of our readings how the hawk was worth a thousand dinars and the nightingale was worth only like two? <laughs> From the Arabs, that is. They have these pristine hawks that are like, uh, they value very highly hawks. Especially a good trained one. They're hunters. It's quite a thing. It's in, I've seen TV shows about that. For the moment I envied the lords of the Middle Ages who had their hawks, and I thought of the Arabs with their fast horses and hawking on the desert's edge, and I also understood the terrible fact that some men love war. In the end, I think that hawk is to be studied by saints and contemplatives because he knows his business. I wish I knew my business as well as he does his. Wow, this is a good reading. <laughs> I wonder if my admiration for you gives me an affinity for you, artist. I wonder if there will ever be something con-natural between us. Conatural. What's that word? Connatural. Between us, between your flight and my heart, stirred and hiding to serve Christ as you, soldier, serve your nature. And God's love, a thousand times more terrible, I am going back to the attic and the shovels and the broken window and the trains in the valley and the prayer of Jesus. That was from February 10, 1950. March 3rd, 1951. March is St. Benedict's month, clearing thorn trees from the rocky shoulder over the bottom, middle bottom, where the new road is being made. I got to be good friends with this relic yesterday, with his relic yesterday. How weary I am of being a writer. He's like a writer now. 
In fact, he said in a prior reading that he had gotten uh, signed a contract with a book publisher, so instead of being wondering what his career is, he's pretty much become a writer. How necessary it is for monks to work in the fields, in the train, in the rain, in the sun, in the mud, in the clay, in the wind. These are our spiritual directors and our novice masters. They form our contemplation. They instill virtue in us. They make us as stable as the land we live in. You do not get that out of a typewriter. Hmm. Right? We can't get it out of our iPhone, we have to go into the mud. <laughs> the sanity of St. Benedict has something to do with the mystery of a monk becoming an American citizen. Yesterday I looked closely for the first time in ten years at the manuscript of the journal of my escape from the Nazis, which I wrote ten years ago at St. Buenaventure's at the beginning of the war. You see, he... Uh, he starts out in like 1940. With the beginning of this book has some entries about the war, but it's already 1950. There is some fair writing in the book, but I reflected great moral and disintegration in my life more than I ever suspected. I revealed more of myself than I meant to in those pages that are by no means as cryptic as I thought, but I do not think of hiding anything. In being obscure, I was only trying to discover something of myself. I could not see what was so plain. What's amazing about these uh, these um, journals is they are so, like, revealing and honest. Like, they're just straight. They're just straight revealing. There's, they're not... Uh, like they're they're just as it is fake journals, I guess. I don't know. They're not embellished in a way. It was very inhibited book it was a very inhibited book in spite of all the uninhibited explosives of an invented language, you which I still like. What? Uh you can embellish, yeah. Yeah, he's a monk, but he could, like, uh, it's sort of like he doesn't hide his faults or something like that. Like, he's, well, he's apparently, I, I think he's probably a good writer because, remember, he taught English? He's a monk and a good writer. <laughs> The action can never progress forward. In fact, there is no action. A situation presents itself, and the stream of the book, which after all has a stream, stops and forms a lake. It is sometimes quite a bright lake, but I can do nothing with it. Sitting in the garden house, I viewed the pale glare of sunlight on the roof of the distillery a mile away across the dark hills, and I thought about the whole business. Although my thinking was a little incoherent, circling the subject with a laziness appropriate to the hour, 1.15 p.m., I nevertheless came out of it more healthy than I went in and descended the ladder, more in my one piece than I climbed them. One of the problems of the book was my personal relation to the world and to the war. 
When I wrote it, I thought I had a very supernatural solution. <laughs> Everybody has a supernatural solution. Do you have a supernatural solution to the coronavirus pandemic? <laughs> How many supernatural solutions have we seen on the internet? <laughs> when I wrote it, I thought I had a very supernatural solution. After nine years in a monastery, I see that this was no solution at all. The false solution was this. The whole world of which war is a characteristic expression is evil. It has therefore to be first ridiculed and spat upon and at last formally cursed. Actually, I had come to the monastery to find my place in the world. And if I fail to find this place, I will be wasting my time in the monastery. It would be a grave sin for me to be on my knees in this monastery, flagulated, penanced, uh, though now, not now, as thin as I ought to be, and spend my time cursing the world without distinguishing what is good in it from what is bad. Wars are evil, but the people involved in them are good. Is that not true, dear? The people are good. Wars are evil, but the people involved in them are good, and I can do nothing whatever for my own salvation or for the glory of God if I merely withdrew from the mess people are in and made an exhibition of myself and write a book saying, Look, I'm different. We could just do that, just write a book and say, Look, I'm different. <laughs> To do this is to die, because any man who pretends to be either an angel or a statue must die the death. The immobility of that journal of my escape was a confession of my own non-entity, and this was the result of a psychological withdrawal. On the other hand, if you let yourself be washed away with all the dirt on the surface of the stream, you pile up somewhere in another kind of immobility with the rest of the jet-sam, jetsam in the universe. Coming to the monastery has been for me exactly the right kind of withdrawal. It has given me perspective. I, it has taught me how to live. Now I owe everything else in the world a share in that life. My first duty is to start from the first time to live as a member of a human race which is more or not less ridiculous than I am myself. And my first human act is the recognition of how much I owe everybody else. There is a world that Christ would not pray for, but the world was made by God and is good, and unless that world is our mother, we cannot be saints, because we cannot be saints unless we are first of all human. <laughs> Thus God has brought me to Kentucky, where the people are, for the most part, singularly without inhibitions. This is the price place he has chosen for my sanctification. Here I must revise all my absurd plans and take myself as I am. Gethsemane as it is, and America as it is, atomic bomb and all. It 
is utterly peculiar, but nonetheless true that, after all, one's nationality should come to have a meaning in the light of eternity. I have lived for 36 years without one. Nine years ago, I was proud of the fact. I thought that to be a citizen of heaven, all you had to do was throw away your earthly passport. But now I have discovered a mystery, that all the ladies in the office of the deputy clerk of the Louisville district are perhaps in some accidental way empowered to see that I am definitely admitted to the kingdom of heaven forever. <laughs> For now I am beginning to believe that perhaps the only or at least the quickest way I shall become a saint is by virtue of the desires of many good people in America, that I should become one. <laughs> hmm, what a funny reason. Last night I dreamt I was telling several other monks, I shall be a saint, and they did not seem to question me. Nevertheless, I believed it myself. If I do, I shall. It will be because of the prayers of other people who, though they are better than I am, still want me to pray for them. <laughs> hmm. Maybe we'll get to Seven Story Mountain. March 4th, 1951, Day of Recollection. Shall I reread the bits in my and St. John of the Crosses, the Ascent of Mount Carmel, about the memory? They seem to do me so much good always. Year after year, returning to them, in what sense do they make a difference in my life? This journal... I mean this one. I am writing right now. Apparently I have not yet written enough of it to become completely solitary or to be able to do without it. It is useless to drop the thing and say I am solitary just because I am not writing a journal, when in fact the writing could help me to find my way where I am supposed to be traveling. So I read about forgetting and write down all I remember. Somehow, there is no contradiction here. It is simply a somewhat peculiar way of becoming a saint. I by no means insist that it is sanctity. All I say is that I must do what the situation seems to demand, and sanctity will appear when out of all this Christ in his own good time appears and manifests his glory. June 13, 1951. It is some time in June. I add a rough guess. I think it is June 13th, which may or may not be the feast of St. Anthony of Padua. In any case, every day is the same for me because I have become very different from what I used to be. Do you think uh, during our quarantine lockdown in New York during coronavirus pandemic. Every day has become the same to us. <laughs> Some ways that we get lose the count of the days. Right? I don't know. The man who made this journal was dead, just as the man who finished the seven-story mountain when his journal began was also dead. And what is more, the man who was the central figure in the seven-story mountain was dead over and over. So in a way, uh, maybe the journal is the autobiography. Hmm. Seven. That's what the journal is. Well, the Seven Story Mountain book was made early on. 
So how could it be his autobiography? It's a, a young man's autobiography. It's, it's, the, it's the early years autobiography, I guess. Because, again, maybe they have everything. Well, if you write an autobiography like when you're 30, let's say, is that your autobiography when you live longer? If you go back there, he maybe she started at 30, he finished at 60. No, well, where and he, and the way he goes back, you can actually pick up some of the earlier journals because he goes back and reflects upon them and huh. writing down what the seven story mountain was about was sufficient to get it off my mind for good last week. I corrected the proofs of the French translation of the book, and it seemed completely alien uh. I think he may have known French. Uh, I might as well have been a proofreader working for a publisher, going over the galleys of somebody else's book. <laughs> See, like you can be looking at your own book and it's like, it could be foreign to you because... Yeah, by the time you finish it, uh, you don't remember what you want. It's like I could listen to me playing the piano and and I don't recall... I don't recall that it's even me playing it. Huh. If you are, if you listen to an old recording, like uh, if I see a poem that I wrote uh, ten years ago, I wouldn't. It's not me. I don't remember. I wrote you could. It. You would say like, who wrote that? Huh. I didn't write. Or you would say, did I, I write that? I huh. remember a few, but I don't remember all of them. Consequently, the Seven Story Mountain is the work of a man I never even heard of. That's funny. He says constantly that Seven Story Mountain is the work of a man I never even heard of. That's funny. Mm, catchy title. Nice title for the podcast. <laughs> mm -hmm. What title are you going to use? Mm. That's the title of this reading. <laughs> I like to be catchy because I have... Why did I have desire for catchiness. This journal is getting to be the production of somebody to whom I have never had the dishonor of an introduction. Quote, Behold, I made all things new. On Trinity Sunday, I was named Master of the Scholastics. Uh, he's a master of the Scholastics. Dom Lewis, Gethsemane's father immediate, had asked for the formation of a regular scholasticate. Regular scholasticate. Never even seen that word. Some of our large monasteries have them. They are absolutely necessary when the young professed are too numerous to remain for a long time in the novitiate. They need a spiritual director as well as some sort of family life of their own. The problems of the young professed turn out to be perhaps the most crucial thing in their Cistercian formation. The fact that I had suddenly ended up in this position clarifies all the foolish pages of the journal I have written about my own problems as a scholastic. For now I know that the reason why I had to resist the temptation to become a Carthusian was in order to learn how to help all the others who would be in one way or another tempted to leave the monastery. When I read such a lot, 
such a lot of dunscotus. It was in order to learn, after all, the importance of keeping to the straight line of Tomism, Tomism, and keeping scholastics out of the difficulties that are too great for Cistercian to solve. Our life is not designed for theological controversy, and Scotus is one of them, is more than the Cistercian head could bear at least until somebody distills his essence and gives it to us secondhand. Our life is not designed for theological controversy. <laughs> hmm. At least until somebody distills his essence and gives it to us secondhand. You think our life is meant for vaccination controversy or is there something more to it? Finally, about the vault of the woods, I am appalled by the number of useless books that have piled up in the vault. As long as I was a writer, I thought of them as possibly coming in handy for the compilation of a book. But now that I am a spiritual director, I have to live beyond my own borders in the souls of those whom God has placed in my charge. It is immediate evidence that very few of these books will ever help me to help them. On the contrary, most of the stuff on those shelves would only encourage me to disturb them. I am embarrassed at having walked with eyes wide open into such an obvious sin. As for the woods, on Whitman Day, <laughs> Whitman Day, W-H-I-T-M-O-N-D-A-Y Just before we cut down the last grove of the cedars where one could hide, still hide inside the enclosure, I explored a wooded bluff outside the east wall, which is sufficiently fenced in to be considered an extension of the enclosure. With the full approval of Dom Lewis, Reverend Father has given me this wood as a refuge for my scholastics. It's funny how he he had kind of wanted his hermetic hut. He wanted his own little hut in the woods. And he didn't really get it until it becomes his refuge for my scholastics. Uh, he could get a book reading room, I guess. <laughs> It is a pleasant place, and I can move quickly. I can more quickly find solitude there than in the woods, which is further away. So I find that now I spend more time praying and have less time for self-admiration. My prayer is more confusing and more obscure. I disappear and know nothing except a confused awareness that I in the woods exist, but that I have a center, which is outside the sphere of this existence. Two hours are the same as five minutes. The bells ring, and I am too often late for vespers. Meanwhile, in the vault, I bless my children and talk to them one by one, and it is much more interesting than writing a book, besides being less fatiguing. Now, furthermore, since I'm obliged to live the rule in order to talk about it with any degree of authority, I go out to work as often as I can, and now have blisters uh, away the. I now have blisters again the way I had them in the Novitiate. Novitiate. 
I come home full of dirt and sweat and bathe and change and sit down under a tree behind the church where you can really pray. This I, thus I sit on the threshold of a new existence, the one who is going to be most fully formed by the new scholasticate is the master of the scholastics. It is as if I were beginning all over again to be a Cistercian. But this time I am doing it without asking myself the abstract questions, which are the luxury and torment of one's monastic adolescence. For now I am a grown-up monk and have no time for anything but the essentials. The only essential is not an idea or an ideal. It is God himself who cannot be found by weighing the present against the future or the past, but only by sinking into the heart of the present as it is. Nice. Uh, I have to say, I enjoy this book uh, more than maybe all the others. Mm -hmm. Do you like it? like a friendly book. It's friendly reading. It's quite... Uh, it's it's got a lot it's of things going. To, it's good reading. It's uh, uh it's uh he's kind. It's amazing that he writes so much about. He just takes a walk outside. That it comes in that often. It's almost like Thoreau because he walked a lot. We read from February tenth, nineteen fifty all the way through where he said uh, he says uh, we cannot be saints unless we at first all be we are all first all human <laughs> and he said the seven story mountain is the work of a man I never even heard of <laughs> our life is not designed for theological controversy <laughs> and we ended with who cannot be found by God only, the only essential is not an idea or an ideal. It is God himself who cannot be found by weighing the present against the future or the past, but only by sinking into the heart of the present as it is. That was entry of June 13, 1951, from the journals of Thomas Merton and the intimate Merton, his life from his journals. Burden's real autobiography is his personal journals.